Greetings and salutations out there in internet land or cyber land or whatever land you want to be in. This is Jeffrey Wheatman, and I am excited to welcome you to today's episode of Risk and Reels, where we talk about movies. And if we have time, maybe we'll talk about some cyber. I am joined by uh, a new friend, but a good friend, uh, George Alcora. Uh, George is the Chief Information Security Officer for Ruby Life. Uh, he is super, super busy, and we are so honored that George took time out of his day to come visit with us. Say hi to all the listeners, George. Hey, Jeff, how's it going? Thank you, everyone, for uh, you know hearing me out and giving me the time of day, because I barely like listening to myself, but Jeff seems to have given me a platform, so I appreciate my friend, Jeff. You don't like listening to yourself, but you have your own podcast, which I'm going to actually be on coming up in the future. So, uh, I, so I'm going to butcher it. Tell everyone out there who's listening what the name of your podcast so they can go check that out, because it is awesome. Yeah, so I got a show... <clears throat> Thanks, Jeff. I got a show called Bare Knuckles and Brass Tacks. It is with another guy named George, named George Kamid. He is on the sales side. He uh, recently just became the head of product marketing at Cinder, which is a super exciting trust and safety company. Um, that. And so our whole thing is talking about uh, trying to solve the whole uh, vendor-client divide in security. And, you know, if you've been in the game long enough, the, the game of, you know, doing the business of this thing can be extremely insufferable super annoying and if people got or people tried pulling this shit in any kind of dating context or just how you deal with your friends it would be completely offside yet for some reason in the sales relationship it's just accepted this whole show is meant to call it out excellent all right well people definitely should check that out after they listen to uh to george today so all right uh so as everyone knows we always start with a movie question so what am i going to hit george with um Okay, I got a good one. What movie has a great redemption story? So bad, bad person turned good, bad guy, bad girl, whatever turned good. So please, may, maybe you didn't have necessarily a great sort of feeling, but but I think everyone has an opportunity to to have redemption, right? Everybody gets second chances. So what what movie do you love that has that that redemption cycle? I think a movie that really always speaks to me from like a redemption cycle standpoint has been Jerry Maguire. So if you remember Jerry Maguire, like dude was top of his game at a big firm, right? He signed all the big clients. He's going to the NFL draft and all the thing. Um, and then, you know, he has this Eureka moment where he realizes that everything in his life that he's built up to doesn't actually align to who he is and what he wants and what his vision is. And so he uh, he puts out this mission statement where he honestly captures his thoughts and puts it in like, you know, everyone in the company's mailbox. So the next morning he gets praised the hero for like a minute. But then obviously, you know, the company backhandedly uh, works to, to pull all of his clients from him and then they fire him unceremoniously. So now he's all up on his own. He's got to figure out how to how to basically be an independent uh, consultant as, as a sports agent. And kind of everything that comes with that whole life reckoning, his fiance leaves him, his friends won't talk to him anymore. You know, he's absolute rock bottom, but he is just so uh, solid in his belief and his vision and himself and what he knows he's trying to achieve. Um, I mean, that kind of uh, that kind of perseverance, that kind of resilience, that kind of strength. Uh, I, I, I feel the emotions kind of building up, even like thinking back to it, you know, and so that movie is just. It's something that's meant a lot to me since I was a kid, and I'll still think back to it when I'm going through stuff now. 
I love that. That's a that's a great choice. And and it's it's interesting because you know Tom Cruise has a different career now, but back then a lot of his movies were about that redemption cycle, right? He was somebody who was at the top of the game, he was a total jackwad and everyone hated him. And he then crashed and kind of came back. So I, I love that. That's uh, that's good. Now, I'm, I'm a big fan. One of the things I love about you, George, is you don't hide your emotions. Um, and I, that I'm drawn to people like that because I am very much the, the same way. Uh, people always say I'm passionate, which is a good way of saying I'm a little high strung. But I'm, I'm okay with that, uh, with that label. So my redemption story might be a little bit controversial, uh, especially in light of some of the latter films, but my redemption story is Anakin Skywalker, Darth Vader, right? You know, you see him and he is the most evil, evil person on the in the universe, essentially. And you see him sort of get the redemption at the end of what turned out to be uh, episode uh six which we didn't know at the time of course then they go back and they show and he actually was even worse than people thought but even still just the whole redemption the fact that the redemption was triggered by his essentially abandoned son in in luke skywalker i i love that it's uh some of the movies that we acknowledge we don't acknowledge that they ever happened but i just think that's uh to me that's a powerful redemption story because his his sort of comeback is literally in the face of death, right? He he essentially sacrifices himself for his his abandoned son. So that that's kind of my uh, you know what, my, you know what's funny about take. that is um, I always considered that kind of story arc, especially the Anakin story arc, um, to be that he was misunderstood, and a lot of his anger came from being misunderstood. And uh, I think if you end up being any kind of successful person in this industry in our industry of all things and, and you're someone that people actually you know seem to like hanging out with you're you're probably a bit of a misfit and uh i dude i, I totally would i i'm down with the anakin kind of kind of story <laughs> arc like i think i think you've hit it on the head but i think there's like a lot more can even be explored to it if we ever wind up yeah. show about that yeah, no, I, that would be a great, uh, great conversation. Next time we see each other, then uh, I know we were talking before we started the actual recording that both of us are going to be traveling like crazy coming oh, up. Yeah. Uh, and it's, um, you know, people say, oh, you travel for it. That must be fun. And the answer is, nah, it's probably not as fun as you think. Being places is cool, but getting there, especially these days, is just atrocious. Uh, but hopefully yeah hopefully it'll be better so all right so redemption i think that's actually a great transition right so you are the CISO for ruby life um for those of you out there that don't know ruby life had a fairly significant and very very public breach six years ago five years ago george uh no not like eight years ago oh okay oh, yeah i covid totally ruined my time sense of time i yeah. have zero ability but in any case very public very visible um you know we won't go into into what your business is but it was the it was a potentially embarrassing for the people who, whose data got breached um so you took the opportunity you were given an opportunity to come in and step into a program that clearly there were some challenges i don't want to say issues and i don't like blaming people uh you know eight years ago i it was definitely not the same risk environment as we have now so first thing What's it like walking into an environment where people probably are walking on eggshells a little bit because of of uh, an incident that had taken place? So what's that like? 
Uh, well, I'll I'll state this: like I I stepped in this role on like year, I guess five or six after it happened. Um, so like like they were just in the last bit of um some federal government, uh, U.S. federal government kind of uh, compliance processes. Um, I can't speak to anything that happened in those days because I wasn't part of it. It's not my jam. That kind of yeah, thing. We're probably better off if you don't talk about it anyway, because we definitely don't want to cause yeah. anybody any issues. But what I inherited uh, at the time was a very, very, we'll say raw and small security organization that was punching above its weight, but that I think really needed uh, a strategic vision for growth and for sustainability. So I think the challenge the challenge is, okay, well, how do we take something where we have less than, you know, five people and we're trying to build the thing and, and the the vision that I had for what the security should be is, you know, something that's more, you know, more attuned to some of the larger MSPs. Because when I started in InfoSec, I, I worked at an MSP. I worked for a big global consulting firm. Before that, I was working at Army SIGINT, which is very, very big, refined, like, operation centers. Um so I was like, okay, well, this whole kind of like mom and pop shop approach to security, it doesn't really align with anything that I've considered good or effective. And, and that's, and that's you know, I know a lot of large scale organizations only have small teams and they make that work. But in my belief of how I like doing security, that is not how good SecOps happens. And it's, you know, that oftentimes puts a lot of stress on people. People can't take time off. It creates, you know, dependencies and single points of failure. These are all things that need to be avoided. So when I took the team, I was like, okay, cool. So here's the strategic vision of like what I'd like us to achieve. Like day one, the first thing I was like, okay, so this is what the organization is. These are my people. These are what their strengths are. This is where the rooms for growth. And what do we need to achieve in the next six, 12, 18 months? And, and even before getting to that, it's like, what is the mountaintop? And I was through this process working backwards. I'm like, what am I ultimately trying to achieve? Where am I at now and what needs to be done to get from here to here? Whether it's been, you know, when I've been doing startups or just working through any idea that requires a longer amount of effort, I always try to work backwards from what the end vision is. And that end vision might change, but ultimately you're going to be a lot better off if you have some kind of North Star to guide yourself off of versus like, okay, I'm going to deal with this problem this week and this problem this week. And if you're just chasing fires the whole time, if you remember before, they used to talk about the CISO burnout. CISOs wouldn't last longer than two years. It's because they never actually had a lot of strategic vision that they were trying to follow. They, they weren't campaigning with the business and the stakeholders to get them on board with a vision for something better than what they have, something better than they can achieve. And, and you know, a big part of the narrative that, that I've managed to sell at the organization, both internally with my team and with the other stakeholders across the board, security is not a cost center. We are a business enabler. We enable the ability for the business to continue to put out new products, to give our customers the chance to interact on our platforms in a safe and secure a manner that we can provide for them. And ultimately, and this is kind of the advantage of, of being at a post-breach organization, I don't need to sell people on what security <laughs> culture is. Like we, we have a security awareness training program. It's great. I love it. We're constantly trying to find ways to make continuous improvements to it. But it's a world of a difference between when security is looked upon as a cost center and an eye roll and an annoyance. And, you know, if your SAT sucks, like the occasional PowerPoint deck that you have to go through a couple times a year versus like, hey, we want to do this thing, but we don't want to create risk. 
so is it exhausting sometimes to get pulled into like a half dozen different issues or phone calls or emails or whatever it is on different varying problems? Sure. Would I rather be part of those conversations than not? Obviously. Right. So that's right. Cause, know, cause the otherwise they, otherwise they're calling you in when stuff's on fire. Right. So getting ahead of the curve and figuring out, I, I said, otherwise you're called in when the stuff's on fire. Right. So if you're not brought in sort of in advance. So I just, you, you said something really interesting that I want to kind of pull on because this is something that I've always talked to CISOs about is what is the strategic plan, right? What's the long-term vision? You know, when I talk about strategic planning, I always say, look, I'm on stage. There are 10 doors in this room. Unless I know what door I want to end up at, I don't know where my first step should be. And I think that that's a big problem. I think people are stymied by the stuff that is right in front of them and don't necessarily have that longer term vision. So how did you, how did you sell your, your business stakeholders on, on that vision? Right. Because I think they, business people still think that security is very much, well, what tools do we need? Right. So how did you sell them on that vision when you walked in the door? Really what I tried to talk to them about was this is how it's done successfully elsewhere. Right. And this is how we actually improve our business reputation. Right. So, I mean, look, you're not going to go around and like advertise all the cool things you do in security because that's just painting a big target on you. But if you are doing the things that you need to do to build a good program, you know, from a business to business level or at an industry level, you're going out to events, you're recruiting good people, you're developing relationships, you are building a real pipeline with suppliers. You are making yourself known as a player on the client side that the most cutting edge firms want to deal with, want to interact with. And that viability then shows ownership, then shows, you know, the people that you have to win over that, hey, we can actually trust what these guys are doing. We can trust the program. We can see that they're trying to build something that, you know, puts us at the cutting edge of industry. And and the, the mantra or the mission, the mission statement that I went with was, we are building world-class security. And I emphasize that to my team. I emphasize that to the organization when I talk about it. But that statement, world-class security, I just kept hammering home on that again and again and again. And we kept making small wins, small wins, small wins. It just turned into an avalanche momentum. And now, you know, we're, we're at the table for some pretty substantive conversations. And it's not just pure security anymore. Like now we're contributing across the entire uh, dev cycle which, you know, at a software company, that's that's pretty important when security is at the table and it's considered a key part of the whole CICD. You know, again, it, it's about the give and take as well of showing that we are trying to provide business value. So we're not just sitting there looking at our tools and reading logs and waiting for something to happen. We're doing that in an automated manner as much as we can and then focusing our efforts on how can we provide support and value across the rest of the organization. When we put out and show that goodwill, they then return that favor to us. This is the business of security. This is what it is to be a corporate security organization at a client side shop. So I love that because I think that uh, there are too many CISOs out there. And I I say this and I always feel like I'm going to get flamed for it. There are too many CISOs out there who think their job is to protect the organization from itself, that their job is to protect the data and, and to protect the technology. And in fact, it isn't about that, right? It's, you said it earlier, it's about enabling business goals without exposing yourself to undue risk. Now, the advantage you have coming into an organization that had a breach, they know what that risk is, right? So 
put yourself in a role of someone who's walked in where you don't have that. What, what kind of advice would you give CISOs or aspiring CISOs? How do you communicate that without sounding like Chicken Little or without sounding like the boy or girl who cried wolf? So how would you suggest people have that conversation when they don't have that? Hey, you remember what happened. What do you tell well, people that don't have that advantage? A good step would be, first of all, figure out what the state of your organization is and the state of your actual program maturity, like whatever it is you inherited, and then figure out where the immediate vulnerabilities with that program are, right? And this is part of the investment ask. And then come up with a plan, again, that works in like either a quarter or half year or 12 month cycle or whatever it is that your business operates under. Um, and then the big thing too are use cases, right? So it's not just like where you see hypothetical risk, it's look for other organizations either in your industry or like your market segment that are of a similar size that potentially have the same you know type type of security program excuse me and point them out when they have breaches when they have problems when they get like hooked into some major supply chain issue right that's what makes it real the problem is when you don't have an actual recent instance of a breach to, to reference against. You need to have something that you can point to to say, hey, things could actually go wrong. Actually, let me correct you. Things will go wrong. It's not a matter of if you get breached, it's when. Are we going to be ready? Are we going to have a plan in place? Are we going to have redundancy? Do we have a business continuity and disaster recovery? Are we looking at cyber insurance options? Are we trying to become compliant to a certain level? Like, there are so many different questions that demonstrate business maturity and value. And, and you know, if you had asked me this question five years ago or something like that, I think it would have been a much more stressful conversation as well. Nowadays, you know, post-COVID especially, we are in the era of the digitized economy. We are seeing open source technology development happen at such a rate that, you know, Congress now has to figure out how to put guardrails on it. Do I think they absolutely picked the worst route possible to figure that out? Yes, but they are at least recognized that they have put guardrails on it. It shouldn't be that hard to have to sell and to explain to people that, you know, you, the organizations that run predominantly on now digital marketplaces, they're getting rid of their brick and mortar operations, a lot of them, that you need to secure the shop. And if you can't convince them, then I would say find another place to work because they're just waiting, waiting, waiting to get breached. Now, the other thing, too, when you start presenting this, and, and typically if organizations don't already have a, like a mature security program, they oftentimes, I've found in my experience, really look at security as a cost center, and they're going to ask you, what's the ROI? So there is no solid ROI formula for security investment, but what you can do, and what I would suggest, is figure out other organizations, either similar in size or that are in the same market sector or industry, that have experienced a major compromise or breach. Show what the cost was, both in terms of numbers and in business reputational loss. Show what really happened. Show how it impacted their employees, how it impacted people associated or affiliated with the business. Show how much it spread across the supply chain if that was the issue, right? It's not fear-mongering. You're literally just pointing out, hey, if we don't make these investments and if we don't build this program, this is what we're setting ourselves up for, right? If the organization doesn't start turning, because what they're what they might ask you to do is they might give you a little bit of leeway to see how you do with it. They're not just going to give you a whole black box budget and just be like, "Cool, go ahead, waste all of our money, spend away." They're going to look for incremental successes. 
So if you can look at a thing where it's just like, hey, I want us to implement uh, MFA, right? They don't have MFA. You guide the company and your team through the successful implementation of MFA. Great. Now you have secure IAM. Then your next thing is, cool, I want us to implement, you know, EDR across the board. Or if we don't really know what's happening, again, port layer. So you go through that implementation. Hey, I want us to uh, really take a hold of how we're doing our vulnerability management. We should really make this cycle. We should really, you know, we should have a RACI in place and know who's responsible for what. We should show some process leadership across the entire organization. You get that done. Now you have some cornerstone key steps for a mature security program in place, and you've shown viability to your board and the rest of your C-suite that, hey, they can trust you to get this done, and they can listen to what your ideas are because they have actual value. And you know, ultimately, and this is kind of like a, another personal mantra for me, the thing that security leaders need to achieve, right? Confidence through visibility and control, right? CVC. If you are not achieving CVC, you're probably not doing well as a security leader. Interesting. So, so I, I do. I want to just repeat one thing you said because I think it's really important. ROI not a thing for almost all security investments. I think there are some exceptions where I think you can demonstrate, but I think as a general process, I think trying to sell return on investment for security is never really a, a good idea. Because at the end of the project, you're not going to be able to show it. It's not going to contribute directly to sales or, or revenue or, or productivity. A lot of it is indirect. And I think that's a really, really important thing that you hit on, which is that there, I always tell people security is only part of your risk landscape, but it has an outsized impact. Because if you get hit with ransomware, you probably can't pay your bills. You can't provide your services. You can't ship product. You can't build product. You can't manufacture whatever whatever business you're you're in there and I, and I really I like what you just said about having sort of those key pillars right around you know identity and access management around you know the the MFA around vulnerability management and and it's interesting and I don't know if you did it on purpose but it very much matches to the old sans 20 which is now sans 18 which I don't understand right mm -hmm. which is what do you, what do you got are you managing your threats and vulnerabilities? Are you managing your privileged users? And do you know where all your critical stuff is? And if you don't know those things, everything else sort of falls apart, right? So you you can't build a house on a on a on an unstable base. I think Look, that's super super critical. Jeff, I'll be the first to tell you, man, and I and I openly joke about it to people. I am completely unqualified to have this job. All right, I don't have like tested certifications, which isn't to say I haven't done the training. I've done the training. I just really, really hate doing proctored exams for things that are just very like prescribed. And, and, you know, in this kind of job, I think experiential kind of knowledge is, is far more important, but we can have that discussion later. Sorry to my friends that work at SANS and, you know, work at all those certification No, I companies. agree with you. And when I, I used to do a lot of, of uh, job description review when I was in my previous role at Gartner, and I used to tell people all the time, you want to put certifications on the job descriptions, make them, make them desired, but not mandatory. Cause yeah. you and I both know tons of people that have tons of letters after the names and can't do anything. No, and and like if the problem isn't exactly what they were taught in their little program, they're fin useless, and that is the last thing I need right now when I'm in the middle of a, when I'm in the middle of an incident. Yeah. Um, that said, I've still done the training, I've still done the reading, like I still have my big, thick old uh, SIFS book over here. You can't really see it; the thing's massive. It's like literally this thick, and um, you know I still go back and reference it because 
you do have to look at what are the fundamentals, what are the industry standard fundamentals? How do I think about the problem? How you solve the problem is up to your uh, ingenuity and creativity as an individual leader, you know, the organization, the budget, the people you have working for you, the people you have working with you, so many different factors that are kind of driven on you as a leader to pull the best performance from. But actually understanding what are the industry standard methods of approaching the problems, that's where you have to be a study. That's where you have to take the time on your evenings and weekends and read and learn. There is a ton of value in that. Do I think there's a ton of value in spending $3,000 or $8,000 just to get a fancy acronym at the end of your name that no one's going to give a shit about except for a government RFP? No, probably not. But you still need to learn the things. Yeah. I knew I knew a guy a bunch of years ago, and after his signature, it said uh, TMTCTL, too many certifications to list. And the guy couldn't do anything other than take classes and take tests. And it was like a big joke. And the crazy thing, he ended up with a really, really big job making a ton of money. And I, I just, I don't understand. And I think, um, you know, this is an ongoing problem. So there's a guy that I'm, I'm recently connected to on LinkedIn and he's been over the last week, he's been posting a bunch of job descriptions for CISOs and you look at them and you go, well, they literally want this person to be everything. And by the way, they're paying a hundred thousand euros or a hundred thousand pounds, which is not even enough salary to pay uh, an engineer at this point now. And, and I think that comes back to the point you've made a couple of times, which is it's a business thing. If the business doesn't see the value, they're not going to allocate the the resources, right? So let's let's kind of shift a little bit and talk about budgeting. Um, you know, the economy is a weird right now. Uh, there are indicators that say we're we've been in out of recession. There are indicators say the recession hasn't started yet, and everything in between. But we're definitely starting to hear people talk about well, we need to start watching what we're spending. We need to start cutting back. Are you seeing any of that stuff? Are people starting to maybe question the investments a little bit more? Yeah, or tons, tons. But when I look at like people can, you know, you can blame CROs, you can blame VCs, you can blame whatever your CEO and, and you know, they're chasing their bonuses and their EBITDAs. Like, I, I think whatever, there's a, there's a time and a place for that conversation. What ultimately I think is driving this is that, yeah, dollars and, and you know, cash reserves are getting a little bit low for a lot of places. We have to ask as security practitioners and as security leaders, are we getting the most utilization out of the things that we spent money on during the good days? Right? I think the problem is, and this is an actual, like, I think it's a fair critique. A lot of big fancy tools were bought, right? A lot of great sales work was done, really fun events, super good marketing, all that shit. You're using like maybe one or two features and 98% of the thing you spent $200,000, $300,000 a year on is sitting on a shelf. And then you want another new fancy thing and another new fancy thing. Well, if I was an owner of a company, why the hell would I approve that? You're not even mm. using the other fancy thing that we bought last year. So I think that's, that's, it comes down to, are we as practitioners leaning into the best practices of business architecture? And are we using our tool sets the best of their ability? And are we achieving, I know we just said you can't have ROI in security. You can't, but you can have ROI for an individual purchase. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's, you know, it's funny you mentioned, I, I was in consulting years ago and every everybody I consulted for always had what I referred to as the closet. Sometimes it was a closet, sometimes it was under someone's desk, but it was, hey, we bought this thing. 
It seemed like a good idea at the time, but we don't have time to train anyone. We're not even really sure what it does for us. So I'm just going to put it over here until we get around to it. And I used to go in, there would be companies that had multi-million dollar quote unquote closets of filled with gear that they never bought, right? So, you know, you've talked a lot about process and you've talked a lot about the, the um, business engagement. What about the human capital piece, Right. We, we keep hearing there are not enough security people. I don't necessarily believe that is true, and we could talk about that, but how are you, like, are you seeing a lot of, of competition for the right resources? Are you being forced to, you know, go back and ask for more money? So what are you seeing on the, on the people front as you continue to grow and build your, your deal? Yeah, headcounts, um, it's tough. Headcount is really tough. Um, that's a nut that even I'm struggling to try to crack. Like I can, I've definitely built a solid pipeline of my own. Like I will say from a recruitment standpoint, talking about the staffing crisis, quote unquote, a big part of that issue is I tell any practitioner that asks me, build your own pipeline. Don't rely on recruiters. Don't rely on services. You got to go out to events. You got to meet people. You got to meet students. You got to meet people who are younger in their career or at the career range that you're going to potentially looking for. So you have to know what you might be looking for in the immediate future or short-term future and build those relationships in advance so that when they're going through a recruitment process, they already want to work with you, right? That's the hard part. It's, it's, you're trying to find people that are right fit. I could put up a job post and, I, and I've done it multiple times in the last couple of years, put up a job post, we get dozens and hundreds of applicants. Great. Maybe, maybe, maybe one to two of them actually make it to the interview phrase because I look through their, their CVs and I'm like, no, this is garbage, this is garbage, this is garbage. And, you know, maybe you might actually have like an initial interview with a couple of them. And it's just like they're not, it's just clear that they are not a fit for the team. And for some cases, it's, you know, they're just, they need a little bit more life maturity. They need a little bit more confidence in themselves. In other cases, they're absolute cert monkeys and they come in there with, you know, 10 to 15 certs and they're expecting like executive pay for a working level job and everyone hates them. <laughs> so I'm like, there's no way I would hire you. Um, yeah. It's just, you have to build the right fit for yourself. Yeah. And, and I think part of the challenge on the flip side of that, right. You know, so we hear, so, you know, I'm like, I lurk on a lot of subreddits and, you know, there's a computer science one and there's a security one. And all those people are talking about, Hey, I've sent out 500 resumes. I've gotten one response back. Now, I don't know what their resumes look like. Maybe they're terrible, but on the flip side, you have hiring managers saying, I can't find anyone. There's a disconnect there. And I think we need to figure out how to do that. And I think some of it, you're right. Some of it's on the recruiters. I think maybe they're taking too formulaic approach to creating job descriptions. I think some of it is unreasonable expectations. Um, I mean, you talked about cert monkeys. What I always talk about is, look, I, I slept on data center floors. I got screaming phone calls from bosses multiple times in the middle of the night to get where I am. You don't get to just step into the seat because you took a bunch of classes, right? So I think there's unrealistic expectations on, on both sides. So, so let me ask you one last question as we sort of pull into, uh, in, into uh, the, the sort of finishing line here. Um, I've been doing a lot of presentations around artificial intelligence and talking about, you know, is, is AI going to be your next CISO? And no is the answer to that pretty quickly. Um, 
Do you see AI replacing some of those junior roles? How, how do you see AI maybe helping either facilitate automation or maybe replacing roles altogether you know, as we move forward? I know you and I spoke last week about some stuff that you have been working on where clearly the bad guys are using AI, right? And we're not as much. So what do you see there? Is AI going to help? Is it going to hurt? Is it going to make it better, worse, combination? So again, I don't think AI is at a point where it can replace entire human beings necessarily, except for like maybe level one, level two, not level two, I should just level one analysts in the SOC world. Sure. Like essentially basic packet analysis and decision-making as part of like a, a fixed um, SOAR process. Yeah. You can get AI in there to take care of that. And really, if you ask most analysts, no one wants to do that shit anyway. Just the, the junk alerts that you go through, right? The level fours. Um, what I do see AI becoming is a thing that if you are not, uh, educated, if you are not open-minded to it, if you are not experimenting with it on your own time, the industry is going to pass you by. I think it's going to become a core component of any security skill set, whether you're on the SecOps side, whether you're an AppSec, whether you're in architecture, whether you're even in GRC, actually, especially GRC with all the policies you have to write and review now. Um, so if you don't actually take the time to invest in learning a couple of AI tool sets and understanding how, how to train, um, uh, LLMs, uh, understanding like the architecture of an MLE and, and, and how to uh, securely implement one within your own environment, I, I think the industry is going to pass you by, you know, and I think that's part of the issue. Uh, if I think back to, you know, historical context phones, right now we have these little computers that are in our hands that are phones that do full functionality. Back in the day, you used to have to call a switch room full of operators and be like, connect me to 99746. And they will literally put in the phone and actually by wire, put you in, plug you into that, that phone network so you can call that person. That was an entire career. People would do that for decades. And within a swoop of a couple of different developments, it's wiped out from the map, right? So we are, we're literally on the same cusp where, where those people could still work in telecommunications, just, you know, um, they got to find a different role. And it's kind of the same thing. If you're not willing to adapt to the new state of technologies, the industry will pass you by. And the jobs that you are used to having won't be there anymore because now there's going to be new jobs based on the enhancement that new technology can bring security operations or can bring whatever the field is, right? If I, for example, even a policy specialist, and, you know, I'm still doing everything manually, whereas there's a new hotshot GRC person, they're fresh out of grad school, they have a little bit of good experience, and they're really, really good with AI tools. They are able to produce better quality results more efficiently and at, at a fraction of the time it takes me to review the same document or create the same draft. Guess what? Even with all my experience and years of decision making, if I'm an organization, I'm looking at performance objectively. I'm going with the young and hungry pup because they know how to get the most out of today's technology now. And I'm too busy to deal with this older guy taking a week or two to produce the same document this kid did in the afternoon. When I gave him the assignment in the morning. That's going to be how the industry goes because of this AI thing, man. Right. So I, I agree. And I think it's really, it's about embracing it. I, there was actually a cool article I saw the other day from an educator and the educator basically said, the, the barn door is open. Right. If you're professors, teachers, educators, if you think you're going to be able to stop your students from using AI, you're deranged. 
Instead, why don't we teach them, to your point, how to use it effectively so that they can use it to continue to learn and continue to grow? And, and I think your approach addresses something which I've been concerned about, and I've actually had conversations with people. If AI gets rid of all the junior roles, where do the mid-level people come from? Because they typically start out as junior people, right? So we have to figure out how we can leapfrog that and continue to throw that in. And I think to your point, I think continuous education, and I think companies need to facilitate that. They need to help with training. They, they, you know, you mentioned nights and weekends and all that is all well and good, but there's a cost associated with, you know, a, a lot of these trainings. And I think some people are just not in a position to be able to to do that. So, all right, George, we are running up against time. Uh, appreciate you joining us. You, you, I think, gave our audience some really, really good stuff uh, to talk about and, and think about. And um, I am looking forward to you and I getting together at some point in the near future. I know uh, we'll be probably flying past each other in airplanes. Um, any final closing thoughts before we wrap up? Uh, yeah. So, just to go back to the start of the show, Bare Knuckles and Brass Tacks is available on Spotify and Apple Pods. Look us up. Please subscribe. Uh, and the other thing, too, uh, Jeff, I got to tell you, man, um, you have been one of the coolest dudes I've met in like the last year in the industry. You're a DEF CON goon. You've been around. You've seen the things. You've done the things. Um, I really value and appreciate um, just the opportunity to learn from you, man, and, and to soak up your knowledge. So thank you for that. And to people listening, this is how you can get advanced. I can't stop swearing, guys. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm a blue-collar guy, right? I grew up in a blue-collar town. Um, this is how you advance your career, right? You make friends with cool people who have done all the things before you, and you just try to figure out how you can add value to their life and where you can learn from them. So if anyone's listening to me, this is how you actually grow yourself is doing stuff like this. I thank you so much, George. I, I appreciate that. Um, I, and I believe me, I learned just as much from you as you're learning from me. So again, thank you so much uh, for joining. Um, this has been another episode of Risk and Reels. I'm your host, Jeffrey Wheatman. Stay safe, stay secure, stay healthy. Wheatman out. Thank you for listening to Risk and Reels, a cybersecurity podcast. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to riveting 30-minute conversation about movies and cybersecurity. Jeffrey will be on the road this year at some of the industry's biggest events, but you can always find him on LinkedIn and Twitter at Jeffrey Wheatman. This podcast is powered by Blackkite, the only security rating service to deliver the highest quality intelligence to help organizations make better risk decisions. 